Podcast 54, Jack Spierko on Modern Survivalism. Sponsored by my buddies at PantryParatus.com. They sell food preservation tools. Produce, prepare, preserve your own harvest. All right, so I got got Jack Spierko on the horn. And, uh, Jack, my first question to you is... uh, Am I pronouncing your name correctly? You are. Okay, okay, you can... Because I used to say Spurco, and yeah, then, then I had somebody email me to say what a dumb fuck I am for <laughs> not knowing how to pronounce your name after having done, like, three of your uh, shows. Yeah, it's okay. People have pronounced it much worse than Spurco. I've got a point <laughs> now in my life where you can call me anything you want as long as you get the spelling right so people can find me on Google. Oh, okay. All right. All right. So now uh, I I think for some of my some of the people that are listening to my podcast might not know who you are, but I imagine eighty percent of them know who you are, and 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 it was because of your show, which is uh, called the Survival Survival Podcast at thesurvivalpodcast.com. dot com, um, and, and you've got a huge you do tons of stuff about permaculture there. And and it was because of that show that you interviewed me, and then I had like this parade of people saying that I needed to start a podcast, and and so I think you know eighty percent of the people that listen to my podcast started over at at your podcast. Yeah, you know, and the way I found you is you know, I I saw this this maniac burying trees on YouTube and said if you buried a tree, um, that you could grow a tomato on top of it without watering it, and I thought. That sounds crazy insane at the same time, so I put that out on the air and put your video out on the air, and then I got like like 500 people going, you got to get this dude on your show. Uh, so I think there's just a real symbiotic relationship between like the Permies community and the Survival Podcast. I, uh, I actually spent a year living on a uh, campus that was a wilderness survival campus. I didn't... I didn't learn too terribly much being there, but um, uh, I, I do. I, I agree that there is a lot of symbiosis between the two, and and um, uh, and, uh, and frankly, as I think about you know things going sour or whatever, which I have people bombarding me with stuff every day about how the world is going to end and whatever, uh, and what what to do. Um, uh, I, I have I, I can't really get too much of a grip of it, but as I think about it, all roads lead to permaculture. I mean, basically. Every problem, every scenario that's presented, every possible bit of craziness, the uh, other other than total world obliteration, uh, the the real solution is indeed permaculture. Well, it, 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 I mean, think about it this way: We're, what is the genesis? We got this guy Mollison run, running around uh, back in the '60s, uh, cutting trees down in uh, in in the forest in, uh, in I guess in in Australia and New Zealand and. And looking at it, and then one day sitting down and asking his fellow tree cutters, hey, does anybody here own a house? And they all look at him and go, oh, I don't own a house. He goes, does anybody here think you're ever going to own a house? And, and they say, no, I don't think I'm ever going to own a house. And he realizes the people destroying the forest to build houses can't afford a house and goes, this is freaking crazy. And he runs off and turns half bush hippie for, for five years and lives in the forest and learns in the forest. And then in his own words decided, well, you know, this is a better way, but it doesn't change anything. So and this is this is when I fell in love with Bill Mollison and realized the warrior concept that is behind permaculture. I heard him in an interview say, so I decided I was going to come back and fight the bastards. 
And, and when I heard that, I said, okay, this guy's serious. Uh, this is not about you and granola singing kumbaya and sitting around a fire. It's about taking the problems of unsustainability instead of bitching about it and sitting here going, look, this sucks and this sucks and this sucks. So dig a hole and hide in it. Well, it was, here's all the problems. Let's construct solutions to turn what is unsustainable into something sustainable. From a survivalist view, I look at it this way. If I can't, if you said, come over to my house, Jack, you know all about fires. And I said, yeah, I reasonably know about fires. You said, I want to know what to do if my house catches on fire. I'd say, you know what, Paul, we can do a lot of things if your house catches on fire. But maybe we should sit down first and figure out 20 things we can do to keep your house from freaking burning down in the goddamn first place. And then we should figure out if a fire starts, if it's a small fire, how it can be contained and put out. And then we'll figure out how to get your ass out the window to call the fire chief. And if we put the, the prevention in place, that's part of the overall plan. So as a survivalist, yeah, I'm ready if stuff breaks down. But my, my real goal is what can we do to mitigate these things when they break down or prevent them from breaking down in the first place? And when you look at it that way, Jack, hey, permaculture is the answer. Oh, did I lose you? For a second there, <laughs> you're back now. I don't know okay, what happened. You're back. Okay. All right. Did you hear me? Did I get all the way through that? No, no. It, it cut out for about ten seconds there. Oh, but great. I got, I got your point. The key is, is that, you know, um, uh, let's try and prevent it. Prevention. Correct. Correct. You know, and and I think that with permaculture, the idea is if we get our systems all set up, and you you got it working really good, I think a lot of people like if the if the economy goes crapo overnight or you know we run out of oil or whatever uh a lot of people it might take them a couple of months to even notice i i think there's a lot of people that wouldn't care and i think that that was in place in a lot of parts of uh of america at one time my grandfather I remember him telling me the story with both trepidation and pride that one day they came and told them in this rural part rural coal town of pennsylvania hey the great depression started and he said no one noticed and one day they came and told them, hey, the Great Depression's over, and no one noticed. And that was partly because the area wasn't exactly a booming metropolis in the first place, but it was more because they provided everything that they needed for themselves anyway. Everybody heated with coal, which is not a good, clean way to do it, but it's what they had and it's what they knew at the time. They're all coal miners, so if you needed coal, you took some home with you. And it was literally that's the way that it was. Um, as far as food, people grew food. They 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 fished the streams. They they planted. They hunted game. And people, you know, even in an area that was considered somewhat impoverished, everybody ate good. Everybody took care of each other. And whatever you needed was available. And people, you know, were preppers. They didn't use the word at the time because their cellars were full of food by the end of you know by the beginning of fall. Well, that was just because they didn't want to be hungry through winter. So. They were put into this, this mentality today that we have become so spoiled, we don't go into that anymore by life as a whole. And I think that when we look at permaculture principles and permaculture concepts, all of it is something somebody did before. We're just finally using the wisdom of hindsight to bring it forth. You look at Google culture, which is how I found you. Steph Holzer was not the first person to bury a tree, throw humus on top of it, and get rid of irrigation. But he made it well-known, and then you took that and you made it even more well-known through your channels. And a lot of permaculture is just that. It's ancient techniques or, you know, decades-old techniques, one or the other, brought forward into modern time and then combined together. Well, and some of it's brand spanking new. But some of <clears> it is. <throat> but most I, of it is. There's not a lot of new ideas. Well, true. I, I would have to say that probably 85%, maybe 88%, 
um, is old and moldy. It, and a lot of it's being resurrected. You know, it's it's from a uh, hundred years ago, and and somehow we've lost it, and we've you know brought it back. And you know, a lot of it is is it's like, uh, uh, hey, let's let's do everything with uh, with chem ag, and let's go and and make all of our fields flat and stuff like that, and and uh, we're gonna we're gonna do things this way. And uh, then people optimize those processes, and they put so much brain power in optimizing those processes that they forgot all about these other processes. Worse, so. worse than that is that they couldn't even do the old process. It's impossible because the old process, well, when you do the new process, you basically create a condition in which as long as you continue with it, the old process cannot coexist. I can't build swales if I make my fields completely flat and square. Uh, I can't practice hugel culture if I get rid of every scrap of organic matter. Uh, so a lot of these older techniques, the reason they went to the wayside and got forgotten is the new technique pushed them aside. Um, before I forget, <clears throat> you said something that struck a bit of a chord with me, and I wish to share a story. And my story is horribly lame because I'm going to just basically relate an episode of South Park. Okay, excellent. <laughs> I love South Park. So <laughs> So, you know, the, the natives used to have, you know, their, their story thing. They, they would pass stories from generation to ger- generation. I'm just going to just just echo South Park, uh, kind of lame, but it's, it's what I got. And it's relevant. And, and there's an episode called Die, Hippie, Die. And so, um, so you basically talked about Mollison being this lumberjack kind of guy, this trapper lumberjack, you know, and then he, and suddenly next thing you know, he goes off and, be, and is a hippie for five years. And then up comes permaculture, and I and I kind of feel like uh, in this movie Die Hippie Die, then then the thing is is that uh, the, the South Park gets all these hippies there, and uh, the the mantra is is that we're going to save the world through the power of rock and roll, and uh, and then the then the episode just gets really funny from there, and and I think everybody uh, who's signed up for the hippie package needs to see this to to understand what is the downside of this package. And it's oh, like there are. There's... Before you go forward, I just have to tell you, I've seen the episode, and my favorite thing is the drill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they can't they can't move through the crowd without that thing. That was bizarre. So, uh, uh, yeah, that, well, it, there were some extremes in the video, to be sure. Um, <clears throat> and uh, uh, but, but after a while, the rest of the town finally agrees to get rid of all the hippies, and, and uh, it's, it's gotten too far. It's gotten out of hand, and and the hip, the town's going to implode or something. I can't remember what the deal was, but the funny thing is, is that um, uh, I was having a, a good conversation with several somewhat advanced permaculture people outside at the Missoula Public Library, and we mentioned Michael Plarsky Skeeter, who's a local permaculture instructor. And some kid on a skateboard happened to be going by, and he came over and said, "Hey, did you guys just talk about Skeeter Man? You know, like Michael Plarsky?" And uh, yeah, yeah, and so then. So then this guy decided that this was, like, a great time for him to educate us about permaculture and how awesome permaculture is. And everything he said sounded just like we're going to save the world through the power of rock and roll. You know, this guy on his uh, skateboard, I did not get the impression that he was actually implementing anything of any use. Further, I mean, we just got done. Uh, I was giving a presentation about permaculture and um, uh, this guy, you know, wasn't tied into that event going on at the library, but he was busy, I don't know, with a skateboard. But it, it does seem to me like for every guy that's out there, for every person that's out there working hard, doing permaculture stuff, and, and like really getting down to the nitty-gritty and building uh, some kind of safety net for the future, um, there's probably 10 guys on skateboards out there that um, 
are singing the permaculture song, only I don't think that they've got any idea what permaculture even means. And even um, if some of them are doing something, the problem is they don't really understand the genesis of it. It's it's that they've 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 latched onto the part of the concept that feels good to them and makes them feel wonderful, and they leave things out like you know having a yield also means having a freaking profit. Um, I think some of these people, even some of the people that are getting involved with permaculture and actually doing something, would do well to read the actual works of Bill Mollison, the guy that actually started this, and see what he actually thinks. I've been going through, uh, like, it's like a 30 DVD uh, PDC course of Lawton and Mollison presenting the whole thing. And one of the things that struck me the other day was uh, Mollison talking about how if you actually knew what the hell you were doing, instead of trying to make a half a million dollars off of 500 acres, you could make a half a million dollars a year off of, of 50 acres or less. Now, that doesn't sound like a guy to me that's against profit. What he's against is profit at the expense of people, profit at expense of the earth. And there's a way to balance that equation out. And most of these people that are running around, like your friend on the the, the skateboard there, and I use the friend uh, the term friend loosely, <laughs> it's real easy to like say, oh, man, we don't need a profit when you're freaking 19 years old and you've never had a job in your life and your parents have paid for everything. But <laughs> I, I want you to think about this. These guys, Mollison and, and Lawton, have traveled all over the world and they've gone into these poor farmer communities and said, here's a better way. If that better way doesn't make a profit and put food in the family's uh, coffer, they're not going to do it, right? These people have got to support themselves. So permaculture is a system that, yes, takes care of the earth. Yes, takes care of people. Yes, creates a return of surplus, which we can get into if you want to. Um, but, but it also is a system that creates profit. There's nothing wrong with that. And these people that are kind of strung out on themselves, as I put it, I mean, I just don't think they get that component. And I think that anybody who wants to be a serious student of permaculture has to understand that piece of it. And if you don't, You'll never really get it. And I know people are going to get real pissed off at me right now. Not that you've never done the same thing to people. Um, but but I'm, I'm serious. How can you throw out uh, one of the most important driving factors, which is developing local economies with this, and just say, oh, man, it's all share. right? I just think that's, it's, it's asinine, honestly. I, I agree. And, and I've got one more component that I want to throw in here, and that is that I have a great deal of concern that when I go around and and somebody's talking about agriculture and they've got 10,000 acres and they're trying to think about how to optimize their systems and things like that, and and, uh, um, and then I bring up the word permaculture, the thing that pops into their head is stoned hippies. And so they immediately want to tune me out and tune out all of permaculture and, and you know, like I'm not talk to me anymore because I've uttered the word that says stoned hippies. Uh, and, and, and I think that's, this is where it is. It's like for every person that's hard at work doing great things with permaculture and really getting down and doing the work and moving forward, there's 10 people that are just saying permaculture is like awesome, you know, and, <laughs> and uh, they're, going, they're going nowhere. Um, um, and so I'm, I, the, my concern is, is that the per, word permaculture is tainted. I, there's a great story of a guy in Hood River, Oregon, where uh, – he was introducing permaculture systems to this school and, and having great progress. But one of the key components that he used in order to have great success was that he never uttered the word. Hmm. You know, and, it, and it's like then, then the system, once the system's like going really big and huge and awesome and he's got traction and there's no going back and everybody's bought in, then he throws out the word. And then people are a little, you know, they're a little taken aback and they're a little skeptical, but eventually they buy in and move forward. 
So the word is getting some traction into the space of reality in the general mindset out there. But I think I think that we're you know there's still some things to mitigate. There's still some issue with people out there somehow getting the idea that permaculture means a bunch of stoners or something. So a bunch of fantasy talk. <clears throat> so I, I like I like the idea that we're getting we're getting traction in this space. Um, before I move on to the next thing, do you have any more to say, any more to say about that? Or did... No, other than I just think that it would really do people. I mean, there's all kinds of folks uh, out there that I see online that I think have this misconception themselves, and that, that are good people. I'd, let's say we'll call them productive hippies, um, and that's fine. And you can take what you want from it, but if you actually want the movement to succeed, realize there's a whole lot more people out there uh, that that are actually interested in the entire process than just your piece of the process. And if you're going to represent the community, if you're going to represent the word, please at least understand what you're representing. Go and do the learning, do the research, and and understand that this thing is not just about everybody feeling good. It is about developing local economies. That That is one of the core tenets to it. And without that, it doesn't work because the whole point of permaculture is what? To be sustainable. Well, if you don't create a local economy around something, it's not very sustainable. I'll let it go there because I, I could go on and on and on. Um, <clears throat> right. And, you know, here's an interesting thing. You asked me on the, the first time you interviewed me for your podcast, you, you asked me about something about hippies. And, and I remember um, my, my position was is that – and you asked also, I think if Sepp Holzer was a hippie. And I said, <laughs> you know, I, I think the hippies wouldn't have me. And I don't think that they would have SEP either. I'm not, I'm, but I'm not sure. But I, you know, the the idea of whether I'm a hippie or not sat, stuck in my head for quite a while. And it was a, it was a couple of weeks ago I finally figured out. You know what? It turns out I am a hippie. And here's 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 the test I did on myself to find out whether or not I am a hippie. And and it, it kind of and this is going to sound weird, but you ready for it? Sure. Okay. All right. All right. All the hot babes are hippies. <laughs> I don't, you go around all the different groups that we have out there. It's yeah. like they all seem like nobody until you get to the group of hippies. And it's like, look at all the beautiful women, far as the eye can see. Just these stunning. So, therefore, because then I realized I, it turns out I'm a hippie. Oh, man. I'm a hippie. Uh, and so that's, that's the test. That's how I figured it out. That I, I am, whether they want me or not, <laughs> whether they'll admit, let me in or not, uh, it doesn't matter. But, but I'm part of that group, and, and, you know, and I'm not going to let anybody tell me I'm not. Okay. Uh, so I'm, I'm in. I'm part of that. And, I, and hopefully I'm a little bit more productive than some because I've met some where they're not very productive. Um, and uh, all right. So now that I've, I've expressed that um, – I, I don't know. I always kind of make fun of my brother because because he's always he's uh, he's he's armed to the teeth, and I think he believes that hippies are for hunting practice. <laughs> I, Run, hippie, <laughs> and then and then you shoot. Um, I I think you know, and so uh, I want to eat some meds. Then I think I think he's got like a little bit of shame about me being his brother. Like yeah. you know, can't I put on proper clothes or something? Uh, you know, so. I like to go over to his place and walk up and down the streets a bit. I'm with him. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, all right. Um, Next thing, I I wish to express a theory that I have, because now you've got thesurvivalpodcast.com. 
I want to express a theory I have about survival stuff. <clears throat> and it goes like this. If you merely have nothing more, you don't, you know, you don't own a bug out bag, you don't own a gun, you don't, you don't uh, own anything that has to do with survival, but you have the survival knowledge set in your head. So you could go out into the wilderness with nothing more than, say, a knife and live there for years on end, just based on the junk that you have in your head. Then, when you go to your 40-hour-a-week job every week, you go there because it has some sort of advantage to you, but you definitely don't go there because you have to. Because mortgages and car payments and whatever else is going on in your world, you can walk away from it all and go live in the woods, go live in the wilderness, go live someplace else with, with that knowledge that's in your head. Gaining that knowledge gives you a type of freedom. Yeah, I, I agree with you to a point. I, I will tell you this. You're probably going to make the choice that a soft bed and air conditioner is a better way to live uh, after about, I'd say, a good week to week and a half out in the wilderness and when you're stinking and uh, either freezing or sweating your ass off. So there is a certain amount of freedom that comes with the knowledge, and the knowledge is highly useful. To me, the knowledge is most useful when blended into our modern way of living, though, and that's why I coined the phrase modern survivalism. We don't discard uh, technology, uh, but we certainly learn how to do without it. We don't discard something like a GPS. They're awesome. I mean, it's great. But we also learn how to use a conventional compass. And if we don't have a conventional compass, well, then we can make a sun compass. We can take a stick, put it in the ground, uh, look where the tip of it is with a shadow, throw a pebble there, wait 10 minutes, throw another pebble, wait 10 more minutes, throw another pebble, draw a line. I've got an east-west line. I can now orient and I can navigate. Those types of skills are what you're talking about. No one needs to carry around a rock and some sticks. You can, you know, a stick and some rocks. You can always find that or something else to use. You can use the, in an urban environment, you can use a shadow cast by a building and do the same thing. So these skills are valuable and they do provide freedom. Um, but very few people, regardless of how well they adapt to them, are actually going to make the choice long term to just go out and live that way. But if we can take them and use them to create levels of independence, then we start to break free of that system, and you know maybe we get into a point by 50 where we work 20 hours a week doing something we love, uh, making a crap wage, but it doesn't matter because it's enough. And I, the way I put it is that when you do survival uh, mentality properly, and you follow my first rule, my first rule is anything that you do uh, to prepare for disaster, emergency, or system failure tomorrow should improve your quality of life today and continue to do so even if nothing ever goes wrong. And if you do that, it ends up in an early form of retirement. It might not be the typical gold watch, live off your 401k, social security check, pension, retirement we've become accustomed to. But if you only spend half of your time that you normally do working and you do something you would probably do for free and you make your own choices, to me, that's that's actually quality retirement. That's a hell of a lot better than rotting away in a chair when your best years of your life have been stolen from you. I do think that there are different levels of um, of survival. Like, like, but, but, but for realsies, if you're if you have the knowledge of how to get by out in the woods, you go out and you you take your knife out there, you build a little bit of a shelter, you you um, harvest what's out there because of your knowledge of the wild edibles and whatnot. I mean, now it becomes a matter of choice. Everything's choice. 
and and uh, so you can choose to continue because like this is something that I hear so many people talk about, and it does seem really miserable where they're working a full-time job to pay the mortgage and pay for the car, which is basically, you know, so much of it is what they consider to be things that they have to do. And it's such a miserable existence that even having the knowledge of how to live miserably out in the wilderness, and yeah, you know, getting too cold, getting too hot, getting uh, too thirsty, getting too hungry, but now it's a choice. And then you can... Add to your knowledge set to make it so that any time, you know, so now you're talking about the bug out bag, you're talking about you've set up some kind of shelter out in the woods or something like that, and you're, you've, you've got your plan B, you're building your plan B, and you can leave behind plan A whenever you want. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's fine if that's what you want. Uh, I think that the big problem I have with, with the philosophy there, that, and not really your view of it, but the view that most of the community has of it, the survival community now I'm talking about, is that they feel that if there's a disaster, they're going to run out there and do that in the middle of a disaster. Well, the problem with that is right now, yeah, you're right. You can pick up a few things and, and head off into some national forest and probably never see another human being for as long as you want to avoid contact, and you can make a pretty good existence for yourself. But in the event of a major resource shortage, you're not going to be the only one with that idea. And walking through native forest, you can come up with a lot to survive with. Put a couple hundred people into a couple hundred acres, and you get into a resource <laughs> shortage very, very quickly. So the two numbskull ideas that most people have when it comes to a disaster is bugging out to the forest and, two, bugging out to Walmart. Uh, both of those are really, really bad ideas, and the resources that are available will be stripped quickly. Bugging out to Walmart could possibly get you shot, or if it is a looting free-for-all, there won't be that much for very long. Bugging out to the National Forest, also in that type of scenario, somebody that knows what they're doing better than you might see you as uh, uh, confrontational and take you out. But even if everybody gets along, you're still going to get rid of resources. It makes a lot – human beings are community creatures. We build communities wherever we go. I just got an article of people living this survival way uh, right near the uh, the uh, suburbs in New Jersey, uh, where there's basically a, a, it's like a Hoosierville camp where they're building uh, a little tent city out there. And it sucks, but those people do have a certain amount of freedom, as long as the government will leave them alone. And see, this is the other problem. The more and more people that would move into that type of a realm uh, in a, a stress situation, the more and more it's going to be pushed back on by local authorities. So you have to find a balance if you're preparing for actual systemic failure uh, that allows you to have some level of peace of, of place that's your own, that you have a rightful claim to. Without that, you've got a big hole. Now, like you say, if I'm just like fed up one day and I need like a two-year vacation and I can leave with my buck knife and make that happen, man, that's great. And it does give you a certain amount of freedom. More importantly, it gives you a confidence that I don't really need to take this shit from you in, in regards to just about anybody. And that actually leads you to greater success in what you would call, quote, normal life, unquote, just having that attitude, if that makes sense. That, that's exactly my point. That was the thing. I mean, the whole thing about bugging out to Walmart was not the thing I was thinking of. The thing I was thinking of is, is the dude sitting in the cubicle and now, with that knowledge set in his head, that cubicle life becomes probably 10 to 20 times more tolerable. Because now he's there because he's choosing to be there, as opposed to the idea that he has no choice. Let me bend this one around your head. 
Okay. Um, he actually has always been choosing to be there. We all are always making choices. We're never actually forced to do anything unless it involves handcuffs and bars. But he's now aware of the fact that it's a choice. And that's the most important factor when you become aware that everything in your life is really a choice. And then it leads to this dadgone thing called responsibility for yourself. And sometimes that's actually not very comfortable initially. But it always leads to exactly what you're talking about, empowerment. Uh, you just might, might have to get through swallowing, uh, you, you know, a lot of people are in pretty tough situations and they're miserable with their job, not so much because the job sucks, but having to go there every day sucks and it, ha- it sucks because they're paying bills they can't really pay because they were stupid and did dumbass things with money. Uh, so when you get into this, like I could just cut myself loose and you realize it's a choice, you also realize all the other stupid shit you did was a choice, but, but it's also fixable. Right. So... <clears throat> I, I, I find great value. And, and then taking all the stuff that we just talked about and then moving it to the next level, in my mind, is that that's where homesteading is. Correct. Because homesteading is where you are optimizing plan A and plan B simultaneously. So yeah. you, are, you are improving plan A because, you know, you, you take your working in a cubicle job or whatever your job happens to be. And 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 you are uh, making that be even better and richer, you know, by pro- by providing a lot of your own food. And there's all kinds of things that homesteading provides for you. And at the exact same time, you know, pr- you're preparing for the you're you're thinking about the whole thing of like, hey, you know what? I could drop all of this and I could go do Plan B anytime I want. Only your plan B starts to look more and more awesome as opposed to going out and living in the woods with nothing but a knife uh, or or doing the bug out bag thing. It's kind of like, I'm going to bug out to right here. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I'm going to bug out to the barn. I'm going to, I'm going to bug out to, you know, something, something here. You know, you've um, mentioned the bug out bag a few times, so for your listeners that are, are maybe not familiar with my work, I'm going to make sure people understand one thing about what a bug out bag is and what a bug out bag is not. If you think a bug out bag is throwing your back and go out into the wilderness and live there for two years, you are wrong. If you think it is to go out and play the second uh, rendition of Red Dawn fighting the communists when they come to take over America, you are delusional. A bug out <laughs> bag is a 72-hour kit. It is designed to get you from a point of danger to a point of relative safety in as much comfort and as expediently as possible with the resources you need to make that happen. In other words, it is designed to be a get-by, not a live-out-of. Even our military, they're the most well-equipped military in the world, and they have supply lines for a reason. You can only carry so much for so long on your back. And I think people that view those as the, uh, you know, there's a difference between a bug-out bag and a combat pack. You are not a soldier unless you are. Then you don't need to hear this. But if you are not a soldier, your bug-out bag is not to go fight the communist Chinese. It is to keep you and your family safe and comfortable during a time of stress. Just had to say it, Paul. Sorry. Nope, 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 nope. You know, you know far, far more about it than I do. I mean, I, I don't have a bug out bag. I don't, I don't, I, I know that a lot of this, a lot of your shows, about one show out of five yep. is about gun stuff. I'd say I, one out of ten, but yeah. One out of ten. Okay. Because I, I, I don't own a gun, and it's, and it's just a weird thing where it's like, uh, I know that for a while when I had my farm, 
Um, I, my brother, uh, who you know, has lots of guns, he uh, loaned me a gun. He felt like I should have a gun, and so I set it up on a shelf somewhere in case I needed it. But it was in you know a box within a box kind of a thing, and and you know my primary thinking was like, well, if a goat got hurt or an animal was hurt, I could put it down easier. Um, than, than, you know, other other techniques. And it's like when you've ever put an animal down, it's like, you know, a gun is just so much better <laughs> than any other technique I've Definitely. ever used. Definitely. And and it's like, uh, um, so there's, I mean, that was pretty much it. I suppose that there could be other times when a gun might be handy, but it's like one of those things where, um, you know, when I'm thinking about what are the things I need to deal with, uh, what are the things I'm going to do, it's like, well, today I'm going to build a bee hut, and so I'm thinking about wood, and I'm thinking about, you know, the screws to hold it together and stuff like that, and, uh, you know, I, I just, but it seems like gun Mon- stuff just never comes up high enough on the list. But you live in Montana, right? I do. And they have those great big brown things there with really long claws called grizzly bears? Um, there and in certain off spots, with, yeah, fend one of those off with your trowel. Um, I'm all for the trowel being more powerful than the gun in many instances, but there are times when we need the gun. We beat your your swords into plowshares, and at times we beat our plowshares into swords. So I mean, I don't I don't second guess your choice. Everybody should have the freedom of choice. And if you're if you're not familiar with and comfortable with guns, I don't believe you're responsible enough then to own one anyway. Um, but and I'm not saying you're not personally, but I'm just saying in general, if you haven't gotten some basic training on safety and you don't have a certain amount of confidence, you really probably don't need to be owning a gun until you develop that. Um, and that's a personal responsibility issue, not a government enforcement no, by liberty I, in mind. But I also look at it this way. If you're going to be homesteading in a somewhat remote location, personally, I feel a lot more comfortable armed than unarmed. Uh, where I live now, it's not that far from town, but average law enforcement response time is about 45 minutes. Uh, that means you could be made dead about 400 million times before <laughs> law enforcement gets there. So if there's somebody creeping around my property, they've got out of their way to be there. They're really up to no good. You don't get lost and end up in my, on my yard. It just doesn't happen because of the way things are laid out. So uh, there's real potential there. Now it might be a, a, you know a long odds, but um, you know a lot of things that we prepare for in the survival community communities long odds. And you know here's the thing: it only has to happen once. So. I respect your decision. It's just that I think there's a lot of value. And I also look at it this way. Regardless of all the stupid things our country's done, and we've done some real stupid things, we still are the one place that people are the most free in their daily lives. Unfortunately, a lot of that's True. changing. But the Second Amendment of our Constitution is a big part of what is the guardian of that. Uh, and remember how when you were in school they said, you got to vote, Polly, because if you don't vote, one day you could lose the right to vote. I think that applies to all all of our rights. Uh, so part of the, my justification for owning firearms in and of itself is it's a right that, if not exercised, could be lost. Just my view. I, I agree. I, I grew up with guns, uh, although I think I've probably forgotten far too much to be, um, you know, really trust myself with around guns on a regular basis. Um, um, but it's it's like I'm my position is not anti-gun at all. 
And and for the Second well, Amendment, for the reasons behind the Second Amendment, I feel that's exactly the primary reason to support it. Is I, I like that thing from that V is for Vendetta show where it's like uh, people shouldn't fear the government, the government should fear the people. And and it's kind of like uh, no, I, I. But you know, it does. It gets into this whole political thing, and and I tend to avoid politics. But I don't know. I guess I guess my line of passions, like when my when my brother, he's just bonkers about guns. He's he just thinks he just spends huge amounts of time thinking about. Them and looking at magazines about them and whatever else and it's like uh, I don't know I've, I've got uh, my my days are jam packed already yep and and uh, with and it's like you know if I've got an extra five minutes I'm, I want to get into it again with Helen some more about you know <laughs> do legumes give off nitrogen while they're alive <laughs> you know and we got to have that argument some more uh, and, and and so or, or like way, gonna, what's your position on that. I I I am a powerful advocate that they do give off nitrogen okay. while they're alive, and uh, and I've and at one point in time I got Helen to admit that they give off two percent, and uh, which she felt was negligible. Um, but you know the thing is is that I think it's entirely possible to set up a system so that legumes effectively give off uh, zero to near zero, and I think it's also possible to set up a system where legumes are giving off a lot while they're alive. So I think if you set up a system and you prove, and this is what Helen, Helen sent me an email recently saying that she had some soils that were very old soils, and she showed this. But, but again, it's like she'll have two species uh, of, of vegetation. So she has one species, uh, I, I think it was like some sort, I think it was like a broccoli. Like she had broccoli, and then all in the same soil, a row of broccoli, and then, uh, and then a row of broccoli with clovers. And I'm kind of thinking, okay, you've got your monoculture versus your almost monoculture. And you're saying your soil is, is 50-year-old soil, like it hasn't been tilled in 50 years. But, um, you know, what's it been doing for the last 50 years? And, and plus this, there's this whole thing of, like, it still seems artificial to me. You know, it, it, it's it's like uh, I I I want to know. I mean, Helen would know. Helen's brilliant in this space, and 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 so. Um, but I want to know how much mycelium was in that soil, and and um, and then as the soil pulses, what are the what kinds of pulses are we talking about? And I imagine that Helen is irrigating that soil, which I think is going to undo. A lot of of how you could share the nitrogen. Well, and I let think me give you some ammo on this um, uh, for your next debate. When you when you listen to Lawton lecture on uh, developing food forests and talk about using not in this case legumes but legumous trees, uh, the chop and drop method is specifically because if you prune a tree, it will self prune its roots to a degree, and when it does that, it will release a significant amount of nitrogen nodule along that root system, which will then become True. bioavailable to everything around it. So if we're growing clover, uh, which is Helen's point, that's it, Helen's point. It, it, are, are we mowing it? Right. That's what Helen Helen <laughs> believes that that if you leave the plant alone. That it gives off zero or near zero nitrogen, but that if you mow it or stress it in some way, and so she would talk about because she spent time with Fukuoka. Sure, she was a, a, a you know, and then so she's she's in fact she's tried to take Fukuoka's work and and continue it here in the United States. Yep. 
And uh, so her stuff is, is that Fukuoka would stress that clover, yeah. and then it would give off nitrogen. But doesn't nature stress things all the time? Like you're talking about irrigating a field of clover constantly. Well, that's not a natural state for clover. Um, looking at it with a totally non-leguminous plant but making the point, I have uh, a watermelon plant growing in my bag garden right now, which was just doing phenomenally well, but I left it in the care of a teenage boy while I went away for a couple of days who didn't water it enough. And in that environment, it needs to be watered every day because it's 110 degrees outside. It had five little watermelons on it. They're like a sugar baby or some species like that. Uh, it now has four because one of them dried up into a watermelon-shaped raisin. Uh, because <laughs> the plant said, the plant said to itself, I cannot survive with all of this fruit in development. I must sacrifice one. Its innate intelligence knew it, it had to give one up, and it probably drawed the moisture back out of that one particular fruit. That's pretty interesting innate plant intelligence in of itself. But basically what that means is when plants have to make do with less irrigation at certain periods of time, natural or man-made, they will self-prune in some way. So if we leave the clover alone, so she's saying if we leave it alone, it won't. I'm saying if we leave it alone, it will, because if you leave it alone in its natural state, it's going to have times of, of highly available ir irrigation sources and at times of very low irrigation sources. And that's not me stressing the, the plant. That's me letting the plant exist as it does in as close to a native state as possible. So I might do things to improve the moisture retention of the soil that clover is growing in, but it's still going to go through stress even if I don't do anything. In fact, she's removing the stress. I'm not providing it. I, I agree with you, and, and this is also Toby Hemingway's uh, position on, on clover, is, is that um, there are all kinds of pulses. Just day to night is, is it a, a pulse. Correct. And, and it's, going to, uh, it's going to drop some of its roots uh, just day to day, just, just through the day to day pulse. And then, and then you add into that, like, you know, you got, you got uh, hot and dry pulse, wet and, wet and cool pulse, um, and then, and, you know, a variety of different pulses. There's just pulses, pulses, pulses throughout the summer, and then uh, during these pulses, then it'll add on a whole bunch of new roots, and it'll drop back a bunch of roots. Plus, we know this. A, a row of broccoli surrounded by, by clover is in permaculture. We'd have to introduce some other things into that, like either maybe some things that would eat the clover, like rabbits that would also provide manure, and they would eat the clover, and they would cause pruning and pulsing. And the manure itself would add additional bacterium to the soil, which would improve the leguminous uh, nitrification process. So if we, if we, the problem with permaculture and people that are pure science-minded individuals is they go down into isolated things to follow scientific method with control. Well, permaculture is not designed to work that way. It's designed to be a polyculture environment. And as you start stripping away things, you break down the process and go, well, if we take this, isolate it, provide it everything it needs, keep it completely unstressed, does it work? And, and when you come up with the answer of no, I really don't give a shit because that's not how it actually freaking works in a real system. So you can be right that way. It just doesn't actually pertain to anything that matters. Uh, she might be pissed at me, but that's how I feel. No, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think that there's, I think, you know, almost every time that I get into a debate with, with Helen, um, then, then we, uh, like, well, when it's not recorded for a podcast, then we're both, like, uh, going, we give Google a big workout to prove the other person's wrong. <laughs> and, and usually, almost every single time, the answer turns out to be that we're both right. And and that it's like the the answer is is that nature is far more sophisticated than what we thought it was when we started, and and that uh, um, both both of the scenarios that we're painting are indeed 
Correct. Um, and and uh, it's just that nature is just so massive, and we will never, never fully understand nature. Um, so it's it's. Uh, but we're getting. We're always getting closer. But it, we'll we'll never get there. Anyway, <clears throat> um, moving right along. Uh, I listened to uh, one of your podcasts, and and I got to say, I'm, I'm not a podcast consumer. I, I I am still struggling with the idea of all these different people listening to these podcasts and all the different things that they do throughout the day. But um, uh, I'm told that I'm mentioned in your podcast, and so people would send me an email. You should go listen to this one because Jack mentions you. And so I was like, oh, okay. And so, now I'm interested. So, 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 that, so now I'll go listen to him talk about me. What did he say about me? And along the way, I'll hear other things. And so uh, in this one in this one podcast, uh, it's like, I you know I uh, I get all these people every day telling me how in two months the world's going to end or the economy's going to collapse or and it's like not that it's an if it's like that's it's really happening like they've looked into their crystal ball it's a fact and I need to uh, um, tell everybody and I need to get everybody ready for this and whatever else and it's like but you know what it's been it's been this way for 20 years so I'm kind of having a hard time like getting too freaked out about it um, but. <clears throat> You said something that I thought was was really really good, and so there's this fellow in the service, and he's saying, "I move around all the time, so what do I do in order to um, uh, be prepared to be prepared for the shit hitting the fan? And I, you know, how do I? You know, it's like I'm so it's not like I can build a hugo culture bed because if I build it, I'll probably get moved the next week." You know, and I'll be in some other base or something like that. And it's like I have no control over when I get moved. So, you know, I can't do that. And your answer was build your knowledge set. Correct. Because it's always in your head. And it, and I just kind of thought, you know, that is totally kick-ass. That's that's what, it, you know, it seems like uh, everybody's kind of talking about. They've always got this excuse on why they can't build a hugu culture bed. And, and at the same time, they're freaking out and they're saying everybody needs to blah, 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 whatever it is that they think everybody needs to do. And uh, um, really, I think the thing to do is is build the stuff in your head. And and that is your best possible defense to be able to uh, MacGyver your way past all the scary stuff that could happen. Yeah, I, and and at the same time, that same knowledge set is going to make your life a little bit more awesome, you know, even if the shit doesn't hit the fan. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just did an episode on EDC. For those that don't know, that means everyday carry, the stuff that's always on my person. And the one thing that's always on my person is a knife. A knife is not just for the wilderness. And the reason is anything else I need, I can improvise if I have a knife. And I can even improvise a knife. It's just a lot of work. It's a lot of input. And so when we look at EDC, we have to look at it from a standpoint of wherever you are, you're going to be somewhere. And I'm much more concerned with having you know, materials and resources if I go off into the bush than I am walking down the street. If, if, the, if the shit is the fan and I'm in a rural, a suburban, an urban, what, what have you, environment, anything where people are, there is so much crap out there that I can improvise. The, if I have the knowledge set, then, then I can make do no matter where you go. Like one of the biggest things you want to make sure that you have access to in an improv, improvisation environment is cordage. Well, think about your, your office. 
So there's there's you know tons of things in there that could be used to improvise cordage. Uh, and you, if you're out in the bush, I can you know make it out of yucca, uh, but it sure as hell is a long tedious process. But in an urban suburban environment, there's tons of things I can use to to you know accomplish the things that I need that need to be bound together. Uh, so. The skill set's important. It's also important that you have not just the skill set, but the mindset. So this person was traveling in the military. Now, he's going to be pretty well looked after. His biggest concern was his two daughters and his wife that might be sitting in base housing and kind of left to themselves if something started to break down around them. So them knowing they're, you know, be able to get the hell away from where you live and be able to get back there. Actually understand the the directions and have a concept of what a freaking map is and understand simple things like on a map north is up and when you draw a map make sure you draw it with freaking north up know the names of the streets things like this these are so important and then you know there's the financial management aspect of it living in debt is living as a slave Uh, but it really when it comes down to being Mobile. I talk so much about permaculture uh, and, and agriculture and homesteading that sometimes people that travel think, well, I can't play that game. Well, if you know how to do all this stuff, even if we ended up in a long-term scenario, well, I, I can't do hogoculture. Well, if you ended up stuck somewhere long enough, you could. And if you know it, if you bury wood and cover it with shit and plant stuff in it, it grows. Well, then you have that knowledge. Now, I think you're better off if you can find a way to practice it because you get to reap the rewards and you get to fine-tune the system. You learn what does and what doesn't work and uh, and what have you. But otherwise, the skill set is really key. Okay. So, I, I, I yeah, I, I, I think really knowledge so important, just such a such a big big deal. And and I and I keep I mean, hearing hey, everybody talking about the school time specials. Knowledge is power, right? <laughs> Which is why libraries dominate the librarians dominate the world, right? Right. I guess. Right. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> those women were all like their servants, you know, because mm-hmm. all that power they have. Um, <clears throat> yeah, no, I, I think uh, wickedness is power is what it looks like to me. But uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm that whole area. I get so confused so easily. I, I'm not sure how it how it works out. But um, all right. I, I do think though that uh, that, that knowledge is, is a huge part of it to, to, to cover your ass, and and I get all kinds of people talking about gold and stuff like that. But I did have there was one interesting thing I heard um, from this whole perspective, you know, from the the, the doomers. Is in, in the world of permaculture, we've got some folks that, that I you know affectionately refer to as the doomers, the people that are like seem to be really tied into how the world's going to end in two weeks, kind of a thing. And uh, uh, I heard I heard, uh, but there's one guy that's like he's, he's He's kind of like what you're doing. He's got a blog, Rand Pryor. I don't know if you've heard of him. No, I haven't. Okay. Uh, I got invited to some event where he was speaking, and I um, was asked to, like, balance his stuff. And I, I thought he had, like, a couple of really interesting things to say. And he's got some land somewhere, and he's getting set up. And and uh, his stuff is very much like yours, where it's like, you know, maybe it's going to go bad, maybe it ain't, maybe it'll be, you know, nothing else. He's, he is taking the home-sitting approach. Like, he's, he's optimizing plan A and plan B simultaneously. But the one thing he said is that don't buy gold. The thing you need to go buy is hand tools. <laughs> go buy mountains of hand tools that don't require power. And that's your gold. 
Yeah, maybe. I'll tell you what, Paul. I, I have a problem with anybody taking a very one-dimensional approach to things like barter, trade, finance, homesteading, any of it. Um, I, I definitely think it's a solid investment, but um, if, if, if you own hand tools or I own hand tools, we can probably do something with them. Uh, some people can't. And there is a point for barter. Um, there is a point for uh, economic failure. I, I believe, you know, this end of the world shit, I don't use the term end of the world. I use shift in the world. I, if we look in the past and we look at past currency collapses, past failures, the world net and end because we're here, right? I mean, and, you know, they talk about the fall of the Roman Empire. Well, there's Romans. They're just only in Italy now. I mean, the, none of these societies actually went away. They shifted and they changed. And a lot of people got rolled over in the change. So, yeah, I'm all for investing in hand tools. I think that's a, a solid investment. I certainly do that myself. But I also have invested in, uh, a, you know, a generator. And uh, now I'm building a wood gasification system to run that generator. So then that way, even if there's no more fossil fuels in a conventional sense, there's still power. So power tools might be useful because they do things faster. So I think it's much more important that long horizon wise, we take a very balanced approach to these things. And we don't say things like, well, there's no reason to invest in gold. If that was the case, then a a lot of people that are a whole lot smarter and a whole lot richer than you and I wouldn't own any, and they do. So my view on precious metals is 5 to 10% of net wealth goes into precious metals. Uh, That's your total net wealth. That's your property, everything included. That's actually a very small allocation to something that if we have a currency collapse, which... And I'm not going to tell you it's going to be next week, but I'm going to tell you that this currency that we've built is one of the most unsustainable things ever created, and it will eventually collapse. They won't call it a collapse. They'll call it a change like they did, you know, in, well, let's see. The first time they called it a change was 1933 and then 1965 and then 1968 and then 1971. We had defaults on our currency. And we had all these ways that it was changed. Well, when it happens the next time, it's going to be worse than those times, but there's not going to be blood in the streets and zombies coming out of garbage cans eating your tomatoes or whatever. But it's going to suck. It's, I, I think that people that didn't live through or really know someone well who told them what the Depression from 1929 on was like, when you say it's just going to be like that, they're like, oh, it's going to be much worse. They have no idea how bad that time sucked. Uh, we've, right. been, we've been led into a delusional state by the TV and the radio saying this is the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression. Well, if um, if if you were uh, the last time that there was a, a, a disaster, people were being boiled in oil, and then this time if there's a disaster, pe- people are being thumped on the forehead. It might be the worst one since then, but it has nothing to do with what it was like when people were being boiled in oil. And, right. and, and that delusional state has persisted to a point now where people go, well, that wouldn't be that bad. Yeah, if, you're, if, you're, if your grandfather's still around and he lived through it, ask him. And you might yeah. find out it was a lot tougher uh, than, than, than we've been led to believe. I think we have this uh, romantic affinity now, like, like we're going through the trials like our forefathers did in the Depression. This is nothing like the Depression, nothing at all. Uh, no one is willing to go out and work for below minimum wage, leave their family the way they did with the, the, you know, the, the Civilian Conservation Corps under Roosevelt, uh, the way that they are now. That's, that's not happening. Uh, people aren't lining up at soup kitchens. Right? And somebody will get pissed off now and say, oh, you should 
come to my neighborhood, there's homeless shelters. And yes, and that's always been with us. I'm talking about this was a normal, everyday occurrence for mainstream middle America in the Depression. And we could be heading, heading back to something like that again. And that's why I like the homestead approach. That's why I like a balanced approach. Not to, not to go on too long about a response to this guy's comment on tools. I just think that you better buy more than tools. And I, I, think, I think that he is. I, and and uh, probably is. I'm not being. Yeah, I mean, I'm either. I'm simplifying it off a lot. Yeah. So any, any, I, I think you need to uh, uh, kick me in the nuts and leave that guy alone. But uh, uh, I I think Rand Pryor has got some really cool stuff that he's he's talking about and that he's exploring and that he's doing and he's moving in an awesome direction. And in fact, you know, almost anybody that that uh, you know, it's like, well, I'm I'm concerned about the future and my solution is homesteading anybody that travels that path has got a big thumbs up from me agreed i i I mean i really think that that is the path and i don't care if you're doing it on a tenth of an acre in a suburb somewhere uh i think there's some definite advantages to get a little bit more space but uh i think it can be done anywhere Uh, now there's certain people that might try to sue you if you call it urban homesteading but uh (laughs) I'll i'll just say this if they're out there listening my lawyer can beat up your lawyer (laughs) <laughs> that whole thing what a what a stinker that was i've i've pretty much dodged that whole mess it's like uh uh oh for crying out loud there's some people that that need to get a hobby yeah. um i was i was surprised by that one but all right dropping that one behind <laughs> um i've got three more things to go on my list to talk to you about okay. and i'm going to hit the biggest one last all right. So that leaves two more things, and one of the two things is that I um, I was visiting with a couple of your fans last night, and uh, um, uh, I said, oh, I'm going to be interviewing Jack Spirico tomorrow. What should I ask him? And they they said the thing that they wanted to know was, how did you go from having no podcasts to podcast number one, from doing one podcast? It's uh, it's kind of a complex answer to a simple question. Uh, this, the simple answer would be I was working uh, in the capacity of building a media company, and I had a client that wanted a podcast, and I went out and bid the job and said, yeah, we can do a blog with a podcast integrated to it. And then I went back to my developer, and I said, you know how to do this? He said, no. I can build the site, the blog, the feed, and all that stuff, but I don't know nothing about podcasting. So uh, I built one of my own to see if we were going to actually be able to make good on the bid. So that that was actually what the the, the technical impetus was. Now, selecting the subject, um, that actually goes back to uh, 9-11. 2001. Uh, I was, you know, in my glory days of corporate America at the time, working as a as a regional sales uh, director for a company called Fluke Networks. And I was in Pittsburgh, and my family was at our home near Allentown, Pennsylvania, when that happened. And my son was scared, and my wife was crying, and there was no way for me to get home. And uh, I decided at that point I had to change what I was doing and go back to my roots. And it, that was a very long process. Of decoupling from the corporate machine that I had married myself to for so long. So by the time we got to there, we'd been through a lot. We had the dot-com bust, and we had the financial crisis that came with that, uh, and kind of the secondary financial bust that happened. And I knew it was coming again. This thing that happened uh, in the last few years, this Great Recession, was no surprise to me. So my thought was I need to take all of this knowledge that I have from my past, all of this knowledge that I've gained as I've begun to go back to my past, and all of this knowledge about the 
financial system that we're, we're, we're mired in, and I need to start telling somebody, so that's what I'll do the show about. So that's where the whole concept of preparedness came from. So I get in my car one day, and I go, this is the only, you know, I get to work, I've got a company I'm running, I've got two other companies I'm going to partner with, uh, in partnership with, and uh, holding positions in, and my day is a nightmare, and, and all day long, I'm people trying to get a piece of me and get in a meeting with me, and after work even, you know, I have to go out and do recruitment with, with my partner into this recruiting firm, uh, and, you know, business dinners and all this crap that seems like it's such a great life, and it actually sucked, so when the hell am I going to do this? So I'm sitting in the car, and I'm screaming at talk radio, talking to the guy there, telling him what an idiot he is, and said, this is the time that I actually have available to do this. So I turned it off. I got a $30 recorder. I plugged a, plugged a microphone into it. I started doing the show. And that went from, you know, being kind of like, a, will anybody listen, to two years later becoming a full-time business. So there's the long answer to a simple question. And you have about... 25,000 listeners, is that right? Yeah. The yeah. Daily now we get about 25,000 downloads, which is um, one of the most humbling things in the world. I can't believe that that many people actually care what I have to say. Um, and uh, every person out there that listens to me, I, I don't say it enough, even though I say it all the time, thank you. Because uh, without you, I couldn't be doing what I do. That That is a huge number. I mean, when when you did, when you interviewed me, um, I got. I didn't. I had no idea how big your audience was. And I mean, I've done. By the time you called me up and said you wanted, or you sent me an email saying I want to talk to you via Skype and I'll record it for a podcast, it's like I had been on. I don't know how many radio stations. Uh, you know, just talking about permaculture a little bit, and um, and then plus with my lawn care article, I'd done. I don't know, tons of radio, tons of newspapers, stuff like that, where people would interview me for it. And so I just kind of thought podcast is going to be smaller than any of those. And so I thought, what the hell? I'll visit with you on the phone for an hour. And maybe um, you know a hundred people will listen to it, and um, uh, and then it was like a few days later, suddenly all my traffic spikes, you know, and I'm getting you know thousands of people, and it was like some bitch, <laughs> there's a lot of people there. <laughs> well, you know, you were, you were a good fit, and you were something the audience was looking for, and that was the next level in permaculture. I'm, I consider myself to be an intensive student, both in theory and practice in permaculture. But when I started the show, I didn't know what the hell permaculture was. I knew I liked this guy, Bill Mollison, and the way he was talking and saying he was going to fight the bastards. And to me, permaculture was the permanent part of agriculture. If, if I planted a tree and it came back every year, that was permaculture. And if I planted a corn and I had to redo it every year, that was conventional agriculture. That was how limited my knowledge was. So the audience with me as we grew over the time up until I met you, which was, I guess, close to three years into this, maybe two and a half years into this, had grown with me in the knowledge of permaculture. And we were looking for what can we do to go to another level with this? And when we found your techniques around, you know, wafati and, and uh, uh, hugel culture and paddock management of chickens and things like that, it was, it was like an infusion of new knowledge into a place that was thirsty for it. So I think that's why there was just such a great immediate connection between my audience and your community. Well, yeah. Well, my community, I guess, is as large part um, your community, which is just a, a speck of your overall community, I guess. I, I, you know, so much I don't, I don't fully understand. Um, and uh, uh, but one thing we've done is is that uh, enough people were so jazzed about the idea of me having a podcast as they uh, they kind of set everything up. 
And That's cool, isn't it? <laughs> so now I kind of don't have to do much of anything except turn on the recording thing, and then later I'll forward a file to somebody, and then it just shows up on a web page, and, and uh, I'm pretty much done. Um, it's kind of the way my forum got created. We have a forum of about 8,000 people, uh, and that's a real number because my moderators are freaking malicious with getting rid of and deleting spam accounts and things like that, inactive accounts. And the way the forum happened, I'm like, I don't want a forum. I don't want to manage a forum. I don't want to run a forum. And I was posting to all these you know, survival community forums at the time, and I'm like, I don't want them to think I'm a forum pirate. I don't want them to think that I'm just trying to suck their people into my new forum because, as you know, that happens happens all the time. Um, but then a member of my audience emailed me and said, I'd basically talk to a couple other people and we'll run it for you, uh, but you damn well will give us a forum now. And I said, <laughs> okay, I guess I can't turn that down. And now I have this awesome staff of moderators, and, you know, and I probably spend less time on my forum than any other active member um, because you know I'm building the show and interacting with people directly by email and things like that. But it's amazing when you build a community in a permaculture model, which is what we've both done, how they do self-regulate and self-run uh, quite a bit. True, true, true. I, I'm perpetually amazed at how much stuff you get done in a day because, like, you're, you just said an email, and I'm thinking, you know what? I let about 30 emails a day slide by. I, it's like I just... I've got to choose between do I put out a new uh, video today or do I read my email? And we all have to make those choices, and I don't do enough video. I mean, so that's 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 why that happens. If I'm going to answer two, three hundred emails a day, uh, and that's about what I usually answer in a direct answer relationship, then it's going to some other things are going to suffer. So I don't feel bad about it. We all have to make that choice. Yeah, it's. I'm, I feel like I'm perpetually behind. I feel awful about it. And at the same time, I feel like I've got to, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm working my ass off to save the world here. You know, <laughs> Man, that's a tough job. <laughs> I can't stop. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move right on to the big one, AgriTrue. So you and I have talked on the phone about AgriTrue. We have exchanged emails about AgriTrue. We've even had a long conversation on my forums about AgriTrue, um, and the, well, first of all, how about, rather than me trying to say what AgriTrue is, why don't you say what AgriTrue is, and all I want to do is to say, I think that this smells a lot like some of the things I've been advocating for a while, and, and you've, got, you, you've got a very strong direction that you're going in on it, and, and I, I want to see it happen, and now... I'll, I'll step aside. Sure. Well, AgriTrue uh, came about, the name itself came about for my community. Once again, I knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't know exactly what to call it. So I said, okay, everybody tell me what you think I should call it. And one person came up with AgriTrue, and I heard that, and I thought that's exactly what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to restore truth in agriculture with AgriTrue. Here's what I believe. I don't want GMOs, and that will definitely be something that's not in the AgriTrue standard. But if you could ask the farmer who grew the ear of corn on your plate, did you use GMO seed, he will look you straight in the eye and say, yes, I did, because I believe there's nothing wrong with it. And I think he's wrong, but I do appreciate the fact that he will be honest with me. And there was a time in America where when you said, whose word can you take above all others, so on that short list was the farmer's word. I believe that's still true, but the community of consumers has been separated by corporate apparatus from the people that grow our food. And I also looked around and I found all these local growers, when I go to farmer's markets or I talk to people that email me that are you know farmers, that 
say, look, I can't do uh, I can't do organic because there's this one thing, or the expense, or I don't just I don't even want the government sticking their nose into my operation or what have you. And like one of the things I looked at with that is I've talked to some people that are using fertilizer. Conventional fertilizer, you know, this, the CF word, as I call it, in, in, in the permaculture world. Well, you know, these are people that are using massive amounts of organic matter in their soil, and they have all these different crops. And when they grow corn in the stressed environments of the south, it gets a little bit nitrogen deficient, so they add a little bit of fertilizer. And I think to myself, well, I'd rather eat that than uh, eat, you know, let's say GMO crap off of the uh, Kroger shelf. Or frankly, I'd rather eat that than most of the USDA organic corn at Kroger because it's been through this lengthy transportation process and it looks like crap. By the, you go, I mean, have you looked at organic food in major supermarket chains? It does, generally doesn't look very nice. It doesn't look very healthy. And I don't mean healthy to eat. I mean healthy from its standpoint. So I came up with this standard, and the standard's currently written in clay. That basically says, what are consumers asking for now? And what they're asking for is no GMO, no herbicides, no pesticides, right? And they want the, the, the land taken care of. So if we're going to have some limited use of fertilizer, well, there has to be a soil management improvement and retention program. And I came up with this basic standard, and then the animal one is the one I've got the community working on going, put together care sheets for me because I can't come up with a blanket standard for taking care of animals because you take care of a rabbit differently than you take care of a chicken, differently than you take care of a cow. But we all know when we look at a chicken house of horrors uh, where you know chickens are grown today for commercial purposes, that's not ethical treatment of a chicken. So let's come up with a reasonable ethical standard. Standard. And that was kind of got to kind of be it, and then there would be a disclosure, and we'll get to the profile here in a second. Uh, but then you came in and said, I want to do this numbering system, and I'm like, I don't want to do a numbering <laughs> system, and because if somebody's a 50, I want, I want very enthusiastic participation by the farmers. And if somebody's a 50 out of 100, and 50 is good enough to get in, well, the 50 looks bad to the uneducated consumer. But I liked where you were going, so I added this new layer. Uh, silver, platinum, and gold, and somebody asked me what happened to bronze, and I said, bronze is too crappy. All of our people are good enough to be at least silver. And that allows us to do certain things like say, okay, if you're growing and you're using a little bit of fertilizer in some of what traditionally are considered organic pest control methods, that's a silver. A gold, we take away some of those things that typically people think we can get around and do without. And then a platinum producer is somebody that's doing Molson-esque level permaculture. We're not even using insecticidal soap because we're going to still kill beneficials with that. So that's the program in a nutshell. Now, here's the cool part. It is a voluntary program, and the producers self-certify, uh, but the community can report violations, which I expect actually to be very few of them. But when a producer self-certifies, they get a certification. With that certification, we're using an API, which is a programmer term. If you don't know what it means, it means it automates a complex process. And on that certification is a little QR code. That's like a barcode, like when you buy stuff and they run it across, it goes beep. It's like that, but it works with smartphones. And it's an open source technology. We don't have to pay any kind of a fee to use it. So... Farmer Joe is down at the local farmer's market, and he's got his apples and his peaches and his okra and what have you, and there's his little AgriTrue certification. And along comes Mary Consumer, and she goes to Farmer Joe, what's your farm like? What processes do you use? And he goes, I see you have an iPhone. 
Scan that little code right there. Up comes Farmer Joe's profile. There's pictures of his farms, pictures of his operation, his soil management improvement program, what he uses, what he doesn't use. But any consumer anywhere that sees AgriTrue silver, gold, or platinum knows what those things mean. Very simple, easy to understand delineations, and they know they're getting good quality, healthy food, and the land is being taken care of. And to me, that is so much superior to USDA's organic program because we have we don't have one thing that organic does. We don't have government involvement. And to me, if you want something screwed up real good, give it to the government. So that's the program in a nutshell. So I, you know, when it comes up to screwing things up with the government, I just want to quickly say I think I think the private sector can screw things up just as much, if not more, than the government. But yeah, I think that at the same time, you know, you can you can have a government thing come in and uh, make things better, and you can also have that that same office eventually evolve to being a real nightmare mess. No, the government will screw it up, Paul. I'm sorry, I'll disagree with you there. Give them enough time, and they'll screw it the hell up. And I guess the only thing they haven't screwed up is is and they've done it a little bit, but they pretty much run the military effectively because it's a, a self-defense technique. But I would tell you, give me one program these ass clowns have ever run that they've ever not screwed up. City of Missoula. <laughs> the city of Missoula. So if I came into the city of Missoula, Montana, I wouldn't find any waste in their budget. They would, oh, no, I'm sure that you would find it. I wouldn't find but it. But I mean, like, I think I'm going to say that they run very efficiently. I wouldn't find any ass clown code enforcers that are out there harassing people that don't need to be harassed. Oh, I'm, I'm sure you would find, find have some of that, but it's like I'm sure you could also find go. some of that in any private sector too. Uh, and and I and all here's here's the thing is that in 1991 before we had the internet, I I set up an online service that was much like the internet, and then um, I brought in people from the city and from the county, and I got to tell you when I would when I go into the city office, these people had shitty desks and shitty workspaces, and they worked hard all day long, and then I'd walk over to the county. And it's like, um, wow, you know, you know, lots of space, fancy offices, and people seem to be more focused on their need to socialize than their need to get work done. And at the same time, they would complain about how there wasn't enough time to get work done. And so it's like you kind of went. And now I've, and in, in my corporate life, before you know, going down permaculture road so much here and getting into farming, in my corporate life, I mean, I've been to a lot of different offices in the private sector, and it's like Dilbert is funny. And at the same time, it's like the truth. That's that's the way corporate. So it's kind of like I've been to a lot of these different places, and and you are correct. I have seen a lot of government crap, and and like wastes of billions on the national scale. But at the same time, I have and I've seen I've been to some city stuff where it was a clusterfuck, and at the city of Missoula, I've seen an example of stuff running pretty efficiently. Which will only prove the point that the smaller a government is, the better off we all are. And I think you'll see that as you get to the smaller governments, they're better run because people actually know their neighbors. But I'll tell you when the worst abuses and the worst abusive practices and the worst waste happen all the time is when government and business collaborate. When the two work together, we have an economic system that that some people will take real offense to this word about, uh, but it's not about putting people in camps. It is an economic system called fascism. 
when the two collaborate. And that's when everything breaks down. So if you want a government program to function somewhat well, keep private industry out of it. And you want private industry to function well, keep government out of it. It almost be like a separation of church and state type of thing. If you look at like the most abusive thing in the agricultural community, there's one name that I know you would probably spring to your mind as fast as anybody else's, the, the biggest offender, and that's Monsanto. Well, who, who populates the USDA governmental offices. More Monsanto it's, employees yeah. work there than anybody else. So right. if there's any place that we have the biggest abuse, it's when we have government and business together. So my belief is that we keep them apart. Now, I can't tell government how to run, but I can run AgriTrue as a private organization and tell the government to go screw. Right, 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 right. No, I, I have to agree that the, my, my biggest fear in innovation is the government. So, like, if I want to go out and build a Wafati, my biggest fear is the government saying, no, thou shalt not innovate. <laughs> and, and so um, uh, it's like you're allowed to build things the way things have been built before, but you're not allowed to build anything new unless you are a super-duper corporation and you've greased all the right palms and whatnot, and then we make a law saying that everybody's now required to buy stuff from this corporation. Yeah, not only are you allowed to innovate if you're that person, the taxpayers will pay for it. And if you make, <laughs> if you, if you get a profit out of it, you get to keep it. But if you get a loss out of it, the public pays for it. And, and that's why I use the term fascism. That's exactly what fascism is. The, the profits are privatized, but the risk is publicized. And that's if you look at all the crap we dealt with recently. We won't go there, but uh, is, yeah, crisis and all. It's exactly what happened. Homesteading fixes it all. Correct. Correct. <laughs> and if you homestead once again, enough, it, it, permaculture and homesteading. And if you if you homestead far enough away from government in, in the rural enough area, you can build a Wafati and no one cares. But if you try to build it in downtown Dallas or probably downtown Missoula, the code enforcement officer will tell you, Paul, can't do that. It might fall on you and kill you. And you might say, first of all, it won't. Second of all, I am my own man. If I want to build something that kills me, fine. You, you don't care if I ride a motorcycle and, and, and die, so why do you care how I build my house? And, uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, to me, you're right. Permaculture and home Homesteading are the solution, but one of our favorite people, Joel Salatin, what's he say? Everything I want to do is what? Is illegal. Correct. Oh, I, I like his new one, the sheer ecstasy of being a lunatic farmer. Yeah, I got I to gotta get that. It's, oh, it's, it's got some real awesome poetry in it. It is just great. Okay, um, back to AgriTrue. So, um, uh, yes, do it. Okay, I'll, you go do it. I'll wait here. Okay. Um, and and uh, uh, and of course, you know, I'm excited about it. I, I like the idea that you do it. I like the idea of uh, somebody because it's like uh, Jocelyn and I made a podcast a while back, and we go to the Missoula Farmers Market, and she wants to get organic bok choy. And uh, there's probably about 20 different places that are at that time selling organic bok choy. And so she stops at one of the booths and she says, you know, okay, is it organic? No. So she goes to the next one. Is it organic? You know, it's like each time there's this conversation that goes on. And we're kind of thinking, okay, we're going to be at the farmer's market for like an hour and a half, and then we're going to go do other things. And it's like, you know, the, 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 more than an hour has been sucked up trying to find organic bok choy already. And it's kind of like, okay, the price for organic bok choy is now too high. Correct. We're, we're three strikes, and it's kind of like, you know, we've got 17 more to go. And, and it's like by the time... That, you know, I mean, the market's going to close in a while, 
and we've got other things to go do today. And and so the thing that you're talking about is is that we can walk along, and you got our little cell phone, and it goes click, and then it says, not the kind of stuff you want. Correct. The next one, click, not the stuff you want. Correct. And then at the fifth or sixth one, it's like, bing, there's the stuff that you want. It, it, it's, a, it's a, you know, it meets your standards. You've told the app, here's the things that are like what I'm into, and, and now here's a place that's selling bok choy, and they are, they, they, they are passionate about the same things that you're passionate about. And here's the thing. I think that what your friend would have probably found out is that just about any of that bok choy at a farmer's market probably would have been acceptable to her. Um, most farmers that are out there growing things like bok choy are not soaking it with herbicide because Monsanto has not yet made a GMO bok choy that you can spray you know, uh, 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 Roundup on. Uh, and hopefully they never will. Most farmers that are growing vegetables like that have to be doing some level of uh, intensive land management. It's not something you line up a combine at one end of a field and drive through. And, you know, there's not a bok choy combine. Now, there might be somebody out there that's spraying it with uh, seven dust. And, of course, that wouldn't be agri-true in the first place. So if what you're really saying is I don't want dangerous for human chemical pesticides sprayed on my food, the very fact that it's agri-true, you already know that. Now, if you're more of a purist and you say I don't even want something like uh, a, a biological control like BT or spinosad used on the food that I'm eating, uh, which might very well be used on bok choy because it's subject to something like uh, what they call those the cabbage flies, right, the little green worms and the right. white flies, right? So you might say I don't even want that. Well, now we know that if you're going up to a platinum level producer, that's what you got. So you don't even really need to get very specific if you understand the levels, which trust me, when the site comes out, it'll be very clear bullet points, and it'll be basically gold is everything that platinum is plus, and then platinum is everything that gold is plus. So it'll be very easy, but if you actually want to know what does this farmer do to manage their land, they have to publish their soil improvement, retention, uh, and preservation program on their site. Now, this is not you know, a, a 90 you know, paragraph dissertation. This is the basic soil amendments they use when they're at it, stuff like that, however it wants to be described. The beauty, though, is that, you know, once you get a, you look at where your food's being grown and see how it's being grown, now you're making an informed decision. And I guess there'll always be, you know, the pain in the ass. Um, there was like, I have these French press coffee mugs in our store, and they're BPA-free. But that wasn't good enough for this one person who asked, like, this laundry list, of 90 questions about every, every component of this mug was made. And my response was, don't buy my mug, right? And the farmer yeah. might say at some point, don't buy my bok choy. But at least you have insight into what's going on. And I, the other side of this is I want the small producer to be successful. Most of these guys have no freaking idea uh, the marketing side of their business, which is more important than the growing side of their business. You can grow a whole bunch of stuff. If nobody buys it, you're screwed. You have to sell into the commercial uh, world of three- to four-step distribution, and your profit is dead. And that's why you have to be a mega farm to play that game. These guys need a way to be able to reach out to the consumer and for the consumer to find them. So AgriTrue isn't just because you walk up at the, the, uh, the farmer's market. A consumer could sit down and go find AgriTrue producers near me, throw a zip code in, and they'll see them all, and whether they're platinum, gold, and silver, and then they can filter down. I'm looking for AgriTrue-produced chicken, uh, which leads me to one of our biggest problems that we're having right now, and that is 
there are a lot of people out there doing a bang-up job of growing chickens or growing hogs or growing um, beef or growing goats or growing rabbits or anything like that. For these people to, though, be able to say, I guarantee 100% that the feed I'm giving my animals is 100% free of GMO is financially impossible for a lot of them to do. Because the only way they can do that now is what? USDA organic, organic food, which is significantly more expensive for a reason. Uh, some justified, some bureaucratic. Um, but they, you know, would you, let me ask you, Paul, would you rather eat a chicken uh, that came from, you know, a major chicken label that grew up in a farm in Tennessee in a white long chicken house that's never seen sunshine in its chicken life, had its beak burned off so that it wouldn't peck its neighbor chicken's eyes out, stood its own shit up to its wingtips, and lived that way for 44 days until uh, all of the processed food got it up to a market weight and then was picked up and whipped into a truck, kicked in there, uh, abused down the street, and taken to a slaughtering house while the chickens above it shit on top of it. Or would you rather eat a chicken like the local farm I'm buying my from from now that says I chicken tractor my chickens I move my tractors with rel, you know reasonable frequency I feed them pellets at 70 percent of the recommended amount so they have to forage for the rest here's my chicken which one would you rather pick well, well the food, latter duh yeah, right right okay I mean you wouldn't even think duh yeah. right? <laughs> right I'd much rather have this this chicken that lived a reasonable a fulfilling life for a chicken. Chickens, I know you like paddocks better than tractors, but who am I to tell this man how to run his farm? And the, that chicken's a hell of a lot happier and has a hell of a lot more fulfilling chicken existence that way, and I'm getting a whole lot less, much less crap. Now, my view long-term is AgriTrue is the solution to this problem. I can't tell that farmer right now, well, here's a way to get GMO-free feed for your chicken, but... If we build the AgriTrue network, eventually we can say, well, since you're AgriTrue and you want to support the program, why don't you buy your feed from an AgriTrue producer? So that's down the road. We'll be able to solve that problem. So I, there's things I can't fix yet, and we have to make allowances for. Uh, and then a gold producer would probably have to, you know, we're not, this is, again, the standards in clay. A gold producer is going to have to have, you know, uh, GMO guaranteed free so that pushes them into the organic market for now. But you see my point. If we can, we can build this system, then farmers themselves can fix it, and consumers and farmers can work together. The farmer will do – here's the big thing. All you people out there that say, I wish they would do this. I wish they would do that. I wish they, if you'll pay for it, they'll do any stinking thing you want. But you speak every time you spend a dollar of your money to buy food with what you really want. And if you're saying one thing and you're eating Big Macs out the other side of your face – you're never going to get them to produce what you want. So <clears throat> here's, here's uh, uh, the scenario I want to present to you. So, uh, in your first scenario, you had, you had this chicken that was living uh, a, an awful life, a, including the de-beaking. So like, let's say I've got two scenarios. In, in one, the chicken gets de-beaked, and it has all that other miserable stuff that happened. And in the second, it has all the miserable stuff, but does not get debeaked. Now, which chicken do you want to purchase? Neither. And I'm saying, you've got your third choice is death and starvation. I don't care. <laughs> I really don't. I mean, look, the debeaking well, is a problem. Okay, but so then. Here's here's what I'm trying to go with is I'm trying to say that it's like there's a, there's mountains of problems. 
there's all kinds of problems. There's all kinds of things going on. And then currently, I mean, when we're talking about like what your preference is and what my preference is, sure. I mean, we're talking about, I believe, something on the order of maybe 4% of the purchasers out there do care about this. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe the number is higher. What I you- think it's much higher. I mean, let me stop you there. I think it's huge, but the person doesn't feel that they even have the choice. And let me also, like some of this stuff, like when you start this degree concept, um, if I don't debeak my chickens, immediately the density in my chicken house has to go down. So all of the other problems actually get better. Just by not practicing that. So, uh, absolutely true. You know, and I'll, I'll tell you what, um, if you're going to set a standard, like for AgriTrip, there's going to be a standard. There is a, a huge market that wants some basic assurances, that, but they also don't want to pay $4.50 for a wrinkled pepper. Okay, They want to pay a fair price for a quality product, uh, and they want some basic assurances with that. And our government has done a great job of making sure that that choice is non-existent. They've actually used the organic label to squeeze the middle into either organic or crap. And I'm trying to set up a place where the people that, that want to be in that middle can exist. And the people that want to do even better than organic, that want to be beyond organic, get a reward for it by getting a higher level of, of endorsement. Okay. So here's, here's I want to I wanna express something that is uh, a potential template for AgriTrue. And, and I've, got my, I've got a reason for it, which will become apparent by the time I'm done yakking about it. Okay. Um, and that is that I like the idea that there's perhaps something like 20 questions. So a farmer says, uh, I want to sell chicken under the AgriTrue label. And it's like, okay, well, we need to figure out whether you qualify for AgriTrue and then if you do, whether you are silver, gold, or platinum. And so we have 20 questions to ask you. And for each question, there's like, you know, uh, five to nine answers. And, uh, um, and then based on how you answer those, we'll tell you at the end, like, how things work out. So then, you know, one of the questions is, is like, you know, how do you house your chickens? You know, are they in little cages? Are they packed in tight? Is there, like, how much, how much space is there per chicken and uh, do they how much time do your chickens actually spend outside versus do they have the availability to go outside but they're kind of freaked out by it so they don't go out um, you know things like this so there's a series of questions and then you get down to the point where some of the some of the potential answers are like um, uh, you know they have acres which are changed you know basically the paddock shift system is like so the first questions are they're packed in as tight as they can packed in like sardines and the last answer is something about a paddock shift system or or something like that uh, where, where they are moved around on greenery uh, who knows and then when it comes to food there's similar questions and answers like they are they have a uh, 24/7 access to all the feed that they want but they typically don't eat it because they are finding other things to eat out out in this they they're, they're raised in a forest not a pasture uh, and they or they have their choice between forest or pasture uh, at all at 24/7 every day they have their choice between forest or pasture and uh, and when and then they're moved as soon as the pasture gets consumed they're moved things like this so you ask these questions there's these, all these there's 20 different questions and each question has all these rich answers then um, my philosophy is is that just by asking the farmer these questions the farmer learns about options that they may have never considered before. 
And and then at the same time, the consumer can have the little app and it's like, you know what, when you go shopping for food, what are the things that are important to you when you buy chicken? Do you care about how much space they have? Do you care about what kind of food that they have? And uh, and then basically you ask the consumer the exact same question and provide them the exact same set of answers for which they select to determine what's their personal minimum. Then, by just by having the application and just by asking them the question, now they have this greater knowledge set also, because the number one problem I think that's going on right now is these people walk in to Whole Foods or they walk in to a farmer's market and they have no clue. They all, you know, the non-organic seems exactly the same as the organic, only theoretically the organic is supposed to be a little bit better. That's all they know. So I'm going to make you real happy. That's pretty much what AgriTrue does. See now, that's what I'm, and I'm, I'm expressing <laughs> that I think that this is the most awesome part of the whole thing that you know you're talking about doing. And I know that you were going to have some other questions that you're going to do, but but I'm kind of thinking I really want to see those questions be well, super awesome. Yeah, and here's here's the big place we need help with that is on the livestock side, the 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 vegetation side we'll call it the the non-animal foods because people pointed out to me that if you're growing mushrooms they're not technically a vegetable so the non-animal the non-meat based thing is pretty freaking easy to come up with the questions the levels etc where we need a lot of input from people and where people can help us and if you want to be part of our private forum where we're discussing this send me an email jack at agritrue.com and I will give you the link to the private forum that we're not opening to the public until we get this thing skinned, because I don't want anybody in there that has no idea what the hell AgriTrue is throwing their weight around and, and making us waste time, um, is on animal care. Because you know what you're not going to paddock raise? A rabbit. So we have to have a completely different different set of, of standards for rabbits than chickens. I would. I would. Why not paddock raise them? I mean, we've got we've got people that are doing things similar to paddocks now with raising rabbits. I mean, I I cannot bear the thought of hutch raised rabbits. Really, see, and I, I have no problem with it whatsoever. I have, I have so, absolutely no problem with it. I, I do like the concept of rabbit tractors. I, I think one thing we have to worry about with rabbits, though, is, it, you know, when it's time for them to graduate, um, they have a tendency to go down into holes if they're allowed to do so. See, now, uh, here's the fascinating thing is that if you provide them with, like, a, a shelter that's really cool that, and, and there's ways to do it, they tend to set up shop in that, and they don't burrow. Hmm. See, and there, there is an opportunity for producers to learn things like that. But, but again, I mean, I'll tell you what, if somebody's hutch-raising rabbits, I'll eat it. It doesn't bother me a bit. Um, I, I've, I've worked with hutch-raised operations in the past, and if you take good care of your rabbits, they seem perfectly happy and content to me there. Now, maybe that's a silver level or even just a gold level uh, of, uh, of a production. And like I said, all this stuff has to be worked out over time. Yeah. But it is a different animal. It is a different creature. It has different needs. What's ethical for a rabbit and what's practical for a rabbit is different from what's ethical and practical for a chicken. Um, there's a lot of places where a chicken would be completely comfortable and a rabbit would end up dead. True. 
So I, I think that the rabbit stuff's been referred to as uh, uh, raising rabbits in a, in a colony fashion. Yep, and I've been doing some research on that, and I like the okay. idea. Um, but I also know that there's a lot of very small-scale producers that don't have the resources in the land, but I'll eat their rabbit. And I think the average person that's concerned about their health would be better off eating that, that you know, that rabbit that's fed a combination of Timothy hay and, and, a, and a little bit of pelletized food and, and reasonably well cared for as it grows from baby rabbit into fryer uh, than eating, you know, a lot of the crap that's in our grocery stores. I, and I think rabbit's a place where, you know, if you look at commercially produced chickens, how much... Uh, do we need to do to make that food what I consider human quality food? Lots. I think most, you know, we don't, but, you know, rabbits are produced on a smaller scale. They're not as widespread as a food. I think there's a lot less work to do in the commercial rabbitry world. Not that there's none, but less than, the, I've never seen a load of, of a 2,000 rabbits shitting on each other going down the road, uh, pulling each other's uh, hair out the way chickens pull each other's feathers out in that environment. Right, but then we're also not consuming very much rabbit. I'm hoping to change yeah. that. Yeah, and and you uh, what about guinea pigs? In a rabbit, right? You treat a dog differently than a rabbit and a chicken. We don't treat a chicken like a cow. That's all I'm saying is that these yeah. care standards for these awesome questions you want, we need people like you to get involved and tell us because I know, I know non-animal foods, and I know chickens pretty well, and I know rabbits very well, in my opinion anyway. I don't know dick about managing and running cattle. I know that I like to eat my grass-fed beef, but I don't know the challenges that a guy raising cattle actually has to face to avoid going out of business, and I want AgriTrue to let good quality food into the consumer's hand without forcing the producer to make a decision that can put them out of business. And I also want them to have, let's say, a soft entry into that silver level status so that they can take the time to, because a lot of these changes you can make overnight, but a lot of these changes, and you know this, take time. If you've been abusing your land and you want to start growing without any fertilizers, there's a long process to fix what you've screwed up. Or a new producer that buys a piece of land that somebody else screwed up and wants to rehab it. It's not as long as people think, but if i got to pay the mortgage at the end of the month, there's certain things that I may have to do short term to get by. We, we have a thread out of Permese that says something like, um, Alan Savory wins an award. And uh, there's there's a, a really great video there about Alan Savory talking about um, uh, desertification and reversing desertification by using large ruminants, and part of it's talking about elephants um, and 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 reversing desertification in Africa. Then there's a video by a guy that's kind of taking that and optimizing it a little bit, and he was talking about how he went broke raising cattle. And now he's he's doing this new system of raising cattle, and he's doing awesome. And um, and a lot of it is is like Savory's work and um, reversing desertification. And he's talking about how um, and, and anyway a lot of a lot of different things about optimizing. And the big thing being is that um, a lot of people are currently worried about overgrazing issues and, and how uh, uh, grazing techniques used in the past have, have uh, uh, caused uh, compaction of the soil and desertification. And, and uh, I think these two videos together in this one thread really make an excellent picture of how uh, no -uh 
um, the, 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 the large ruminants are the things that are going to save, save us from desertification. I, I thought it was a very, very fascinating thing. Yeah, um, I agree, man. Would you say this, that a lot of our property, a lot of our land that we're even farming on now in the Midwestern United States really is desert now. It, it, it wasn't desert, but it, it, they don't call it a desert, but it, it acts like a desert. And as soon as we were, if we were to stop irrigating and fertilizing, it would turn to desert. We're holding the desert back uh, in a way with this, this, this process. Um, would you agree with that? Yes, okay. I would. And no, no condition, because let me say the other part. Okay. What was there... And I'll help you. Big brown furry things 250 years ago. And how fertile was that landscape then? Awesome. And what was the big brown furry thing? Bison. Right. And how many of them were there? Millions. Tens of millions. But they, the big thing with them is they didn't have these things called fences yet, and they roamed freely. Right. And the, the thing that got them to be in big gobs was the predators. Because as long as they stayed in big herds, rather than spreading all out willy-nilly, is that if they were in the big herds, they were safer from the predators. And, 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 and we could, when the Native Americans used them for everything, from clothing to food to raw materials. And the, 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 the process stayed largely in balance because everybody had to move to make it work. So we didn't stay in one place and screw things up. It was, I mean, I think there's been some over-romanticizing done about the Native American population, but all in all, it was a pretty well-balanced natural system, and what really screwed it up wasn't just agriculture. It was, you know, the invention of barbed wire did a lot to screw things up because the natural movement of animals became disrupted. We could not now, in the current situation, reintroduce the buffalo to Kansas. You got right. It can't work. They can't move. They can't go where they need to go. Right. There's uh, some buffalo about a half a mile from here. There's big. Somebody's keeping a big herd, and and they they're keeping them in the same area, and they're just like destroying that area. And it's like, no, you need to move them around. You keep moving them paddock shift, and and you'll get five times more lushness. Um, but yeah, I, I go by, and every once in a while, I take pictures of the buffalo, talk to them a little bit. Hey, buddy. Take your picture. <laughs> yeah, I talk to some deer on my mountain just about every day. I pass these deer that, that are just off the road, and they seem to just hang out in this spot. My conversation was, in October, I'm going to eat you. I, they don't seem to understand, but... <laughs> I was I was doing a uh, a consultation this morning and uh, 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 anyway this guy was kind of saying this this couple uh, this was a permaculture thing they want to move into the permaculture world and and they're talking about like uh, they like the idea of the deer coming up to their house because they're so beautiful and and while I was standing there a fox kind of was standing on their deck and um, and they love this wildlife interaction they're getting at their house and it's like they want more of that and they want to grow some food that the wildlife leaves. Maybe they'll eat some of it and stuff like that. But, of course, if the, should the shit hit the fan, then suddenly the idea is is that now they don't have to go looking for the deer to go hunting. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, deer are great livestock. I have a corn feeder down in my, uh, my, the back area of my property, and it goes off for two seconds a day. 
Um, so I, my input to the deer is two seconds of corn a day, uh, and my output will be, you know, probably I'll probably only. I mean, I don't want to over harvest there. I'll probably take one or two deer off the property a year, but that's pretty. That's much easier than uh, than you know managing a typical farm. True. Oh, absolutely. And and I thought I really liked their perspective on it, and that was that, um, you know, while the economy and everything else is working just great, they've got all of this wildlife beauty coming to their home. And uh, if things go bad, then they've got all of this food coming to their home. <laughs> uh, I, I just really enjoyed that perspective. Uh, it, was, it was really good. So, well, um, I just anyway. with them. Uh, Paul, I do need to let you know I've got another commitment, so we're going to need to wrap up here pretty quick. Well, I think we uh, we covered the AgriTrue stuff, which was the big one. That was the big one, and I'm excited about what you're doing there. And uh, I, I you know, as much as I want to have the numeric system in place uh, to be able to have people go and, and uh, they could they could walk up and they can see a number and they can they can know that well, it's better than the stuff over there, or or they you know they get some kind of quick I- idea. I think that the whole thing that you're talking about doing, where it's like you've got your phone and you click a pic, you, you, you do the picture thing, and then it pulls up the website and says, you know, they're they're great by your own personal standards, person who's holding the cell phone, then, you know, that kind of thing, you know, that more than meets all of my criteria right there. Uh, the number would be nice, but hey, I'm, <laughs> I'm willing to let it go just to have AgriTrue exist at all. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you, here's, I, how I my support. here's how I know we're doing it the right way. When I talk to the producers they get excited about it. And that's what I need to make the program work. But I want to throw it out one more time. If you, if anybody out there, if you've been working with and raising livestock throughout your life and you actually know what you're talking about, especially if you can speak the lingo and you can talk to other producers for us, you can be kind of our, our leg man on chickens or our leg man on rabbits, please send me an email, jack at agritrue.com, and it's A-G-R-I-T-R-U-E dot com. Um, and, and, and get involved and help us build the standard because if, uh, if we build the standard and later on you bitch about it but you didn't help when we were building it it's kind of like bitching after you didn't vote for somebody that somebody got elected if you didn't vote you don't get to bitch uh if you don't pitch in on the development of the standard you don't get to bitch about what we come up with paul you get to bitch because you've been helping us (laughs) oh good 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 uh um i i I do like the idea of, of throwing in one other suggestion and that is the idea of um uh embrace the idea that you're going to change your mind on some stuff down the road Oh, we are. We are. And like I told you, even your number system, if we build a network and it's functioning and working, uh, later on introducing a thing that says, well, a silver producer, you're a silver producer, and here's how close you are to gold, and here's the things to change, and maybe numerically grading that, that might make sense. But uh, I'm building a system where everybody gets an A, so that's 90 or above. So um, we'll have to figure out how to make that work. Yeah, I, I like the idea of uh, asking them a whole bunch of questions, and then you have certain numerical values, and when they add up the whole score, then it's like you've qualified for gold, and uh, um, you know, and then then the whole thing about like, okay, later you can say, uh, uh, but you're only like three points away from being platinum. So the problem um, with that is you're not three points away; you're one action away, or you're doing there's there's a drop dead thing that if you're not doing it, even if you do everything else really really good, you're not going to cross over to that next level. Um, so it's more like here's the things to do, and here's the things you need to learn to go there. And one more thing I want to throw in right here, and I do have to go. Um, 
at at least the platinum and possibly the gold level, it's not going to just be about what you do with your food. There's going to be some level of community outreach, uh, maybe a workshop you do in your community or something that helps spread this message, which you should be doing as a producer anyway, if you actually want to be successful, that's going to, that's going to take things to kind of a new level. And I'm not going to tell you how to run it. You're going to do that yourself. But we are, I just want people to understand that, especially moving to that platinum level, you're going to have to be reaching out into your community. Anything else, Chad? No, that's it, man, and I do have to run. Flee, Jack, flee! <laughs> All right, Paul. <laughs> All right, talk to you later. All right, take care.